Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. It's November, and we may no longer be in Merlot month, but that doesn't mean we still can't show it some love. Today, I sit down with Michael Schultz of St. Supery Winery in Napa Valley. From Corsica to Napa, St. Supery leads the way in sustainability with being Napa Green Land certified since 2008. Their dedication to quality is represented in the 2018 Rutherford Estate Vineyard Merlot. Please take a moment of your time to rate and review the podcast. You can do it while you are listening. Those not-so-easy-to-understand algorithms really look for new reviews in order to suggest the podcast to other wine lovers. And don't forget to add your email address to the newsletter list on the website to keep up on date all things exploring the wine glass. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, the UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, someday service, champagne and Côte d'Iron specialist, and a WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracita Wines. I am your host, Lori, and I am continuing the conversation of Merlot Me with St. Supery and their vice president of winemaking and vineyards, Michael Schultz. Welcome, Michael. How are you doing today? Hi, Laura. Yeah, I'm good, actually. I'm, I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And I know you had a rather busy morning already. Yeah, I've actually been out in the field today, up in the vineyard, where we've got a lot of things going on. Of course, um, harvest is complete, and um, yet in the in the vineyard we still have to worry about things like preparation for the winter, you know, erosion control plans, and um, and, and preparation for that type of thing, and anticipation of all those activities that will occur. In the meantime, you know, harvest is done, but we're super busy in the cellar, still making wine. Um, but yeah, things go on. The, the, the world continues to spin. <laughs> and did you have as a crazy harvest as we had in Paso? Was the heat making you bring a lot of stuff in all at the same time? Yeah, it got a little bit frantic for a while. The season started fairly evenly, fairly well. But like you say, we had a hot spell. That, and, and it was an extended hot spell, further exacerbated by a couple of extreme days, which were particularly unusual. So yes, it's sort of it's sort of cause us to get a bit of a, a giddy up, I guess, and get on with the task at hand um, and made us uh, move pretty swiftly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we had a lot of vineyards also that were at a, at a lower point in maturity when that occurred, and they weathered the storm pretty well. Um, and so when we got past that, we had a lot of vineyards that we continued to hang for quite a long time too. That's after, good. After that event, yeah, which is right. good and, and has proved to be good as well, which is great. We, we have some nice wines, actually. 
Yeah, I know that a lot of wineries were debating whether to pick or not pick and do things like that. Uh, our Cab Franc, we held out. We we were we braved the heat. Um, the clusters were a little looser than normal because of the shatter and things like that. So we weren't worried when the storm, the rainstorm was supposed to come. We figured, oh, I can dry out. And it was definitely worth the wait because the phenolics came up nicely. What versus if we rush to pick? Yeah, look, we, when we have harvest, we generally don't look forward to the concept of getting rain during the harvest season. But that rain that came after the hot spell was quite soon after that spell. And to be quite frank, you know, it's been so dry. I was not like, concerned about that rain. I did hear it, it caused a little bit of a havoc for, for a few people, but not much. I mean, generally, it, it sort of gave the vineyards a bit of relief, I think, which is actually quite good. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. let's get into talking about St. Superior Merlot. So let's talk about you first and your background. How did how did you come to wine? I sort of grew up in the business. So my dad was a grape grower um, and uh, he was a grape grower. So I, I grew up around that all my time. Of course, his friends were, were winemakers and also grape growers as well. And so, you know, if I, if I wanted to earn pocket money, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be out in the field digging holes and pounding posts and planting vines and pruning and driving tractors and, and and what have you. So I sort of grew up in that that field. What got me into it was that essentially. And then, you know, as all young teenagers trying to work out what the heck to do, I, one of my dad's good friends was a guy called Peter. I'm from Australia, of course, and I'm from the Barossa Valley. And so... I couldn't uh, tell. Yeah. <laughs> And so Peter Lehman would be was a good friend of my dad's, and so he'd be over at our home regularly. And so yeah, I, I was just around that sort of that scene um, growing up, and um, you know, just he gave me some thoughts and some ideas, and um, and I followed through on some of that, and that led me to launch myself into college and and get through a, really, a, a very old, famous agricultural college down there called Roseworthy. Uh, and I studied winemaking there, of course. And then, you know, that's just how it came about. But but really, how did I get get into that? Just I kind of was, I guess I was born into the grape side of things, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, kids who are born into it look the other way, right? They don't want to do what, what the family does. They want to go the other way. So sometimes they have a little, you know, trajectory out before they realize that, hey, this is a pretty good gig. I like this. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. When I finished, um, when I finished high school, I did a year or so doing a couple other things. And one of the things I did was I pruned in the vineyard at home, which I knew how to prune, so I pruned before. But when you prune and you're out in the vineyard for eight weeks uh, in the cold, <laughs> all of a sudden college looks like a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. And so St. Super, they have, their beginnings are actually in, in Corsica. So tell us, how does the winery go from being on the island Corsica, which is, for those who don't know, it's like southwest of France and west of of Italy. It's kind of like a nice little sure. piece in there. Sure. How do we go from being on Corsica to Napa Valley? So Super was founded by a gentleman called Robert Scully, and he's a Frenchman. Um, and his family had been, been involved in wine. I mean, I guess that depends on the point of time, but until they exited this business here, uh, probably 90 years, um, and involved in wine in the south of France. And so along with that came their, their investments in, in the island of Corsica. So they, they had a, a property there, but they actually were 
um, making wine in, the, in on the mainland in South France as well. Quite, quite a significant amount. And um, Robert Scarley, uh, his father was involved. Um, his uncles were involved. I mean, it was a sort of a family affair in the, in the South of France. Um, and they um, obviously had a lot of interest in that, this sort of business. Robert became quite renowned for his in his generation for being the guy that really spearheaded um, varietal labelling in the South of France. So, you know, taking Bun Rouge and Bun Blanc to, to variety label wines of Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, et cetera. Um, and uh, anyway, but Robert was interested in, in Napa Valley and he spent some years travelling here. He, he befriended Robert Mandavi and searched for, he was interested in investing, looked for land for a while, came across the Dolhide Ranch, which we own today. My understanding is Robert Mandavi encouraged him to in that direction and he invested in it. It was an old cattle ranch and that was uh, that was the start of, of St. Supery by Robert Scully and that's how the connection to Corsica comes about through Robert Scully, his family and their, their investments in Corsica. But not only Corsica, like I said, the South France generally. And um, uh, he invested in Dollarhide Ranch in 1982. It was a cattle ranch at the time. And then he invested it in the, the Rubber Estate, which is where I'm at right now. And um, and he invested in that in 1984. Um, so that was sort of how... How our path started, and that's how our link we link back to France, uh, France or to Corsica. Yeah, indeed. And when he when he purchased Dollarhide, it was like a ranch that was no longer a ranch, or was there still cattle on it? It was still a cattle ranch at the time, but he he um, purchased the property and and started planting vineyards pretty quickly. Like he purchased okay. in eighty two, I think he planted his first vines in. 1983, which are, which are plants I'm still harvesting grapes from today, which is cool, wow. 40-year-old Cabernet and spectacular Cabernet too. They, they create a wine that we make called the Dollarhide Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, old vines, really good. Um, and, you know, there's something magical about old vines. There, there really is. And it was a cattle ranch, but, you know, it was a very old... A, it is a very old property with an old history. And if, in fact, if you look at the Mexican old Mexican land grab maps, maps you can find Dollarhide listed on those maps. Um, oh. In fact, we have an old old Victorian house on the property here in Rutherford. We have one of those uh, those maps printed. I, I think it's printed in 1895. And it, it illustrates, if you look at the fine print, you can find Dollarhide on that map. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool having that yeah. that like yeah. history to it. And so com- compare for me the Dollarhide and the Rutherford like what? What are where are they located in relationship to each other, and how do they differ from each other? Well, they're significant. They're, they're significantly different. I mean, it's about a, a thirty-minute drive between the two okay. properties. I mean, not a dramatic distance, but but windy roads make it slow. And but but the sites are quite dramatically different. I mean, it, and that's the uniqueness about Napa Valley generally. Napa is not such a large place. But there's dramatic diversity within a short distance here within the Napa Valley. So Rutherford Estate is right in 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 the within the Rutherford Appalachian, of course, on Highway 29. Um, of course, here in Napa, we've got the two two roads running up through the valley, Highway 29 and Silverado. We're on 29. You see it on the on the screen right now. Um, our Rutherford Estate and our cellar, um, and Rutherford, of course, is 
spectacular country, really fantastic um, grape growing country. On the, the Dollarhide Ranch, on the other, other, other hand, is on the east side in the Bucker Range in the hills. So as you roll into the, into the into those hills in the Bucker Range, you roll into an elevated situation. Um, Rutherford is not very high. Through the Napa Valley floor, you don't have a very dramatic elevation. Great locations, great, great growing locations and what have you, but not dramatically elevated. The Dollarhide Ranch is an elevated property. So it, it, it is quite dramatic. And you've got to actually go into the property to find it because it's within its own valley. It's like a bowl of its own. Um, so when you drive through the ranges into the into the vineyard, it just appears in front of you, which is quite remarkable. Um, it's about it starts as you drive in the gate. The elevation there starts at about seven hundred feet, seven hundred or a bit, a little more, seven fifty perhaps feet, and then. Um, and on the property, it'll elevate all the way up to 1,100 feet for our highest vineyard. More of an elevated uh, site, more of a mountain sort of feel in the wines it makes um, and what have you. And as you see it on the, on the screen right now, it's quite a diverse uh, location. And we ha have a lot of different soils. We have like seven, six, seven different variations on the property. So a lot of diversity on the property. We have flatter lands, which have deeper soils, which typically carry us and then on block plantings. Then we have lots of hills or rolling hills or bench land sites that carries a lot of our uh, Cabernet Sauvignon uh, plantings. And so, you know, when you get into the, the rolling hills and what have you up there, you're seeing shallower soils, more gravel, uh, faster draining, um, smaller vines, smaller berries, that kind of thing. So it's a pretty interesting place. But between Rutherford and Dollarhide Ranch, we're talking about two different locations. They're quite distinctly different, even though they're not really that far apart as the crow flies, you know. Mm, right. Yeah. Every I think everything in Napa is, you know, you the crow flies is not very far. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah we, we have we have slow crows. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I think so. I think so. Um, so in two thousand and eight, uh, Saint Supri Vineyards were certified as Napa Greenland, and what exactly does that mean? And then later, you became Napa Green Winery, so certified. So, like, what? What is that certification process and what does that mean that you do? So, so the, the, uh, the, land, the land in 2008, the, the winery in 2013, Napa Green is, is, a, is, a, is a designation, as you say, a certified designation. It's, um, uh, I, I've got to um, read this as I go here a little bit. I think it's the only, it's, yes, it's listed on the label as, as certificate, certified. Um, to be certified, you actually have to be uh, have someone come in and, and check out your, your location. Uh, and Napa Green, I think, is I think it's the only certification process that uses um, local, state, and federal authorities to do that certification. So it's quite significant. Um, and you've got and, and there's certain requirements that need to be met uh, to achieve certification. Of course, um, certification is is re. Um, recommitted to every five years so while you become certified you are going to be assessed again um, it's a unique certification the fact that even though you've passed um, uh, passed muster as they say in Australia but passed the initial process right um, next time you they come to check you out uh, five years later you have to do something further and beyond what you were doing so it's which is quite interesting because um, that's sort of uh, a little more creative, a little bit, I guess. But 
sort of as a voluntary uh, best management practice type of uh, certification. Um, it's, it, as I say, only program was kind of regulated by local, state and federal levels. Um, and um, it's the only one that's certified uh, by independent third-party regulatory agencies. So it's it's unique um, and it's 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 real. Mm, yeah. And so, am I correct in understanding when you be when you're trying to be sustainable, that there's different certification <clears throat> people companies out there, and right. you can choose which company you want or which program, I guess is a better word to do it. And Napa Green is one of these programs that uh, that makes sure that you're maintaining sustainability. Yeah, I think different regions have their own sort of certification, sort of a <clears throat> measure of sustainability, and they might all have different terms and different ways of doing them. Um, <clears throat> this is the one that's being used in Napa. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, used in Napa. It's called Napa Green. Um, we don't really get to check who regulates us. Um, what, sorry, choose who regulates us. Okay. Um, that, that That is what it is. Um, we just get to choose whether we enter the program or not and what have okay. you. So we at St. Supri, we chose to a long time ago because we, we're believers, we, we're a state brand. So all of our wines are produced from our own vineyards and um, and we're a believer in, in protecting the land, believer in that it's not just here for us, it's here for future, that we should uh, be good stewards of the land, that we should um, protect it for the future, protect it for future generations. Um, and 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 uh, just generally be a good steward. And our Napa Green approach is is our, an effort of achieving that, right? Mm. And you do some pretty cool stuff. Like I was I was looking on the website. I've never seen this before, so I was like, check this out. You actually have like the solar panel data. Yes, and it's real yeah. time, so like you yeah. can see, you know, what the what's going on, and yeah. along the right hand side, it's like what it's helping and things like that. Yeah, look. So we have two. If you look at the label that we, uh, it's on the screen there now. There's two different certifications there: Napa Green Land and Napa Green Winery. And so when we talk about Napa Green Land, we talk about vineyards, um, and that's sort of kind of what's expected when you when you talk about sustainability is that you're farming in a sustainable fashion, um, in an effort to you know um, focus on soil and water conservation um, and sort of restoration of watersheds and so forth, and looking after the natural. Uh, progression of that land but with napa green um, winery we continue we're also looking about what we can do in the cellar so in the winery we're starting to focus on energy uh water conservation waste reduction pollution prevention we look at staff education and just generally reducing our carbon footprint um <clears throat> and so part of that with with the report with the concept of energy we try to reduce our energy use. And we do that with simple things like changing light bulbs out to more efficient light bulbs, for example. But what you're talking about with energy generation, yes, we have <clears throat> our property is loaded up with solar panels to capture um, energy. Um, and we have displays and printouts that indicate how much energy we are capturing. Uh, and, and in the past, well, we recently did, a, did an expansion on our solar program. <clears throat> um, so, so we built some structures to enhance our cellar operations, but structures that allowed us to install more panels. And before that, I think we were generating about 70% of our power. 
we have recently completed this and we think at this point we, we are going to be close to generating, if not generating 100% of our power usage through a year. Wow. Yeah. That is that is impressive. That yeah. is really, really impressive. And we and we do. If you come to the come to the winery or the tasting room, we actually have displays that illustrate what we're doing. It illustrates um, you know, how many trees are not being felled because of it and so forth, and all these different things. And that's part of life sustainability, not just St. Supri sustainable sustainability, but just the world in general, you know. You know, what can we what can we all do as our part of of that? Um, yeah. And I, I like, though it can be difficult, I like how you can't just rest on your laurels. Like, okay, in 2008, we became, you know, Napa Greenland and we're good. We're going to just keep doing what we're doing. Every time they come back, you have had to prove something that you've done even more. And that can be difficult. Like if you're if you're doing so phenomenally, right, it could be yep. difficult to come up with, yep. okay, well, now what's the next step that yep. we're going to do? Yeah. <clears throat> it's exactly right. And that and it is. It sort of it, it throws a bit of, it's it, you've got to be creative, it throws <laughs> a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, at the same token, for a good good for a good cause, good reason for what, what we think is should be a positive result, right? So yeah, it's part of the deal. <laughs> right. so, yeah. And in 2008, were you, were you, was St. Supri like one of the first? It seems like this is, it seems like it was talk, 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 but now there's a lot of wineries <clears throat> who are promoting that they're Napa Green or whatever, but 2008's sadly a really long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know, it is. <laughs> um, so. I don't know. I don't think we were the first, but I think we were amongst them. Right. Yes, uh, and I don't know exactly where we land in that number, but we were in what the part was some of the early adopters for sure. And and um, and we've, as we took it on, we've actually taken on quite seriously, and we've really tried to um, follow the path that we need to follow. Uh, and part, you know, part of that's education too, learning as you go, trying to understand um, what do we do. What, <laughs> How do we adjust and how do we resolve issues we have that we had practices in the past that we don't want to use today? How, what, what's, what, how do we replace that? Um, it's not always, and to be quite frank, it's not always cheaper, I've got to tell you that. Often it's, and it's not always easier. Um, it's often quite the opposite. But, yeah. you know, you, if you when you go down the sustainability path, you've got to make a decision and a commitment. And if, and if you're going to do it, which, you know, I think we all should do, um, you just need to make that commitment and just get a roll with that. Mm. Right. Absolutely. Because if it was cheaper and easier, everybody would be doing it and the world wouldn't be in the place that the world is in, right? right. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. It's it's easy to be lazy. It's yes. not so easy to yes. to to take care of things, right? <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. Mm. All right. Let's talk about Merlot. So I have in my hand the 2018 Rutherford Merlot from Napa Valley. Oh, I have okay. one too. Right Yay! <laughs> um, I love it when things work out well. Um, so this wine is, uh, tell us about, about the wine. So this comes from the Rutherford Estate Vineyard. And um, I haven't smelled it yet, but one of the things that you always hear about Rutherford is Rutherford dust. Yep. So <clears throat> let's talk about this vineyard site and this Merlot. So, I mean, Rutherford um, is always is renowned as a great Cabernet country. And there's no doubt it is a great Cabernet country. Um, and, you know, what's great, and they talk about Rutherford dust, of course, and that, that's, 
what is Rutherford dust? That depends on different people's perspective. For me, Rutherford dust is a textural thing. And so it's a sort of a, a feel, that the structural feel, the tannic feel on the wine and what have you. It's um, it's a very fine grain, dusty sort of texture in, in, is what I feel. Um, some people think it's aromatic. Some people think it's flavour. I think it's texture. And what happens, and, and Cabernet has been quite famous in the area for that. It's got a, quite a unique, it's big, powerful Cabernet Sauvignons, but they happen to be quite silky in their, their dusty textural feel, which is cool. Um, just so happens that Merlot has um, follows the same sort of thing with that same sort of grain, uh, same sort of feel of texture as well. However, Merlot is a different flavour, of course. Um, so it has Merlot qualities, but but it does have some of those benefits. So um, Merlot changes a lot depending where you plant it. If you plant it in the South Valley, it's a different type of wine. If you plant it here, it's a different type of wine. So um, uh, I think... Um, and but but it works very very well at Rutherford for a, for a bright um, relatively opulent relatively ripe um, structured. Uh, we have a number of soils on the property. The front of the property we have a, a bale loam, uh, and some of it some of it particularly where the merlot is has some gravel through it because it was clearly an old riverbed at one one point. Um, so it's very fast draining, uh, fast draining location, fast draining site. So in the in the it's out near the near the highway on the south side of of the parcel there, and so that's a, the bale loam. When you head down towards the the back of the property, you go into a bale clay loam. So the, similar, not not that dramatically different, but more clay in the in that soil. And the unique thing about about merlot is that it can it can grow. It, Quite well in clay soils. In fact, even in all the way back to Old World, all the way back to Bordeaux, you'll see Merlot in in clay soils, but you won't see Cabernet in those soils. So Cabernet doesn't like it nearly as much, and, um, <clears throat> but because the clay soils don't drain quite as quickly, but Merlot does does handle it quite well. So it's a good site. It's a good location right here in the centre of Napa, in the heart of Napa, and that's where we grow our Merlot. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And now a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. And now if we if we go back to that site, I don't know if it's my screen, but so you and you had said that we're grow you're growing Merlot towards the front and the back of Correct. that, right? And so the front is the clay. No, the opposite. The, the opposite. The front oh, okay. is, the, is the is the loam. So the, and the back is the clay loam. So when you talk about loam, if you talk about a loam, you're talking about silt, sand, and clay. If you have a clay loam, it's heavier in clay than the others. If you have a sandy loam, it's heavier in sand than the others. Uh, in its in its blend. So uh, in the front of the property, we we have more of a more of a sandy loam. In the back of the property, more of a clay loam uh, is what happens. So and the front of the property is sort of on the picture. So sort of on the left hand side in the bottom. Um, and in, in the back, it's on the right. Uh, right. Uh, sorry, yeah, on the right hand side, in the in the also in the bottom. Um, so the the 
a little different from each other. The, the Merlots, they produce a little different from each other. Um, the front of the property is a little more bright and opulent, aromatic, and it's also a little more structured, quite dense, quite structured in, in its situation. Also, you'll see, because it's a sandy, a sandier site, you see more high, high drainage and there's more gravel there, so higher drainage. Therefore, you see your berries are a little bit smaller than the back, even though they're both the same varietal. Um, <clears throat> the back has got a little more clay, so it carries... Uh, it holds water just a little easier. It's not waterlogged soil. It drains quite very well still. It just have, holds a little more. Um, and though, down in the back, you see more plum qualities, more dark cherry qualities, and that kind of, kind of thing. Uh, also, it's I mean, because of our location, we gen we're a generally structured site for, for Merlot or our Cabernets, for that matter. Um, but but probably a little more sup, a little more gentle in its feel in the back of the property than the front. The front's more powerful. Mm. And then when you're blending, are there the nobody really talks about clones of Merlot, but they're the, it's the same clone throughout. Yeah, I, I, we use clone one eight one. So so we've got that in all of our Merlot here. Um, over the years, I've had a few different clones. One eight one is the one that we've we've sort of leaned towards. We kind of like it. Um, works very well for us. So that's what we're using. Yeah. So the variations you see are, you know, I've got my little science, you know, deductive stuff going on. So the changes or the differences that you're seeing in the Merlot from those two lots are definitely soil related then because it's the same, same clone and you're, the, you know, same vineyard manager. So it's, you know. Yeah, it's a, it's de soil is, is key. Your wine's always the person of your wine is always going to be about your place and and you know the the key components of places is soil and and your your microclimate there right so soil is going to be key um, what we while we have the same kind of merlot on these on these parcels we have, we do have some different rootstocks and rootstocks okay. play uh, yeah I think rootstocks have, have a dramatic impact on on your wine type and style as well and that's actually that's a long that journey to understand that lesson is long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a very interesting lesson, yeah. but yeah. It, it is long. Yeah. So this, this wine is beautiful and it's actually, you can get both. <laughs> and I don't know if you really get that in a lot of, a lot of wines, but it does have red structure, red fruit and the dark fruit. Like it's got <laughs> some like red cherry, but then I'm getting dark plum. And then it also has, and this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Merlot is that, that baking spice, that cinnamon, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and I always, I have to preface my statement because to me, Merlot is a fall wine mm -hmm. because the flavors, the thoughts that even like, as I smell a Merlot, I think fall flavors i think fall mm -hmm. leaves falling down to the ground you yep. know the bit of the bit of the leaves when they start to you know break down a little bit that mm -hmm. to me is merlot but i drink merlot all year round so i always have to say yes it's a fall wine but it that's it's the flavors of the aromas that are fall not that you only drink it in the fall yeah right exactly exactly now listen it is it's an interesting wine it has the ar aromas <clears throat> that you're talking about also has some inter interesting background aromas. I think in this wine, which is sort of anise and graphite, um, and then of course there's um, some vanillin, uh, mocha sort of vanillin, but a bit more of a contribution from the from the oak influence. Um, 
and this wine's seen a lot of barrel fermentation, so there's a lot of oak, oak influence in there. Um, although it's it's secondary to your flavor profile, which is what I like, what, I, what we want it to be. Absolutely, we don't want the oak to be in the forefront. Yeah. The um, I get I I don't get so much graphite on the nose, but I totally get it on the palate. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Um, that's another great thing about wine, right? It's like when you taste it, you taste it, I taste it, we get different things and, you know, um, that's what makes the world go round, but it, it has a lot of structure to it. The acid level is right spot on. So this is a 2018 and this is your current release. And although I can sit down and I can drink this very easily right now, this can sit and this can, this can hold out and yeah enjoyed at a later date also yeah uh, yeah absolutely so merlot comes with, with with the legend that it's soft and gentle and what have you and and it can be um, but it's again merlot takes a, 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 like all varieties but i think merlot maybe shows its colors more than other varieties depending on where you grow it and so you can depending on your site you can have it very soft and gentle but you can also you know, take it to a different location it can be quite powerful one um and so um but yeah it's a it, it is a unique wine i mean merlot is kind of fun uh for a lot of reasons but it does have different colors depending where you grow it and now you have the benefit of having two different soil types within the same vineyard. But if you if you were taking Merlot in as being yourself, you are Merlot and you're telling you're telling the vineyard manager what type of soil you want to be grown in. What what do you think is the the best soil for Merlot? Mm, it's a it's a <clears throat> That's a that's a difficult question because <laughs> because the legend if if I was to think back on on my understanding of talking with winemakers and people over time what have you and you know you got to bear in mind that I have worked with Michel Rolland for over twenty years and of course he is he is from Pomerol which is all about Merlot um, and you know I can have that hat on where I've learned from people like that that have told me things and I can. Pull, take that hat off and put tell you the one that I, I see on this on our Merlot, and most of my experience has been on our property, which is not very big. So I'm not a very broad and expansive opinion here. But you know, to be quite frank, um, it is a variety that handles soils that have a bit of clay content. Uh, I think that's good. I think that tends to make them more gentle, more supple, more round. I think that's a, that, that's a, a nice thing. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, my fast draining soils actually illustrate more structured wine um, and, and what have you. And I like to make wines that have uh, longevity, the ability. I want to be able to drink them now or soon, um, but I like the concept of longevity. I think a wine should be able to tell a story for a long time if uh, in a cellar that's well and, and well stored. Um, and so I like to see my young Merlots to present some structure so they can have that that leg that length of time and what have you so what type of soil um i like i like what i've got which is a bit of a blend of the two um i prefer that uh it gives me option on the bench for blending which i exercise um but if you told me you have a choice one or the other i'd probably go for the faster draining soil because I, I know it'll bring me the structure and the power and the ripeness um, the slightly smaller berry um so yeah, that's what I'd say. But if you know, 
that's subjective. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's like asking somebody to choose their favorite child type thing, right? right. You know, right. Um, yeah. it's yeah. it's a huge benefit that you have the variation. And, yeah. you know, when you're going through your blending trials, you know, maybe this vintage, it's this percent of, you know, the the loamy clay, the clay loam, and this percent of the sandy, and then the next vintage, because the climate is different during that next vintage, it's a whole other ball game, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And now tell us about the 2018 vintage. So was this was this an easy vintage for Merlot? Because uh, we all know Merlot can be a bit temperamental. She I, I call her she I don't know, but she uh, she likes she likes to be green. Right. Yes. She likes to get away from you with the green. So you've got to you, you've got to, you know, tame her a bit. So tell us about the 2018 vintage. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um... So 2018 was actually was actually a pretty good vintage, a very good vintage. Um, we had a mild sort of winter, um, and then that launched into January with um, pretty good rainfall, which is nice. Um, and and then all of a sudden became dry through February, very dry. And then March and April um, brought around a lot of rain, which is oh. good. Good, good. Any of those times you get that rain is fantastic because it sets up your whole season, your whole year. Um, and then that launched into a, a pretty nice entry into the spring. Uh, J- July came in pretty, a little bit toasty, a little bit warmer than, than I'd prefer, but you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, but the, but the unique thing was then from August through the rest of the year it became quite even, and that was actually fantastic. So quite an even ripening period through the harvest time, and so that slowed things down. That allowed things to get lots of hang time. And I, I'm a believer that whenever you can give it your, your fruit time to just hang uh, on the vine, I know it's an old becoming old thrown around term these days, but um, but time in the vine I think has some has some magic. And so that was a season that allowed us to leave things out there for some time without any pressure under good temperatures, good sort of conditions. And uh, I think that really rewarded. It also allows, rewards you with wines that are very dark and very powerful. And I think 2018 was one of those seasons like that. So good season, actually nice season for 2018. Um, so, yeah, indeed. But yes, and also, yes, Merlot can be temperamental. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got, it's, you know, it's... Um flowering set it's flowering time is really dangerous mm-hmm. right and the set yeah. is a little bit longer mm-hmm. than some other varietals so that's why i went oh the rain but you're that was that was before correct correct okay. we didn't we didn't um 2018 20 2019 we got rain during that period where that flowering period which is a bit unfortunate but um 20 but 2018 we didn't it was before that happened so we were so. fine so Merlot was happy at that point. It got yes. the water it needed. It drained what it didn't want and it was ready to, you know, flower and set, you know, whatever it wanted. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Now, Merlot's parents are actually my beloved Cab Franc um, mm-hmm. and Magdalene de Charente, Noir mm-hmm. de Charente. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever tasted a Magdalene Noir de Charente? I, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody makes it. I don't know what, have you had that? Opportunity? No, I've, no, I've had, never had an opportunity to to, to try that or, or taste it. Although I welcome the opportunity if someone can tell me where to find some. Right. Okay. I was because that was going to be my next question. If you said yes, I'm like, so how do I get my hands on some? How yeah. do I find it? Um, apparently, it's not an extinct grape variety yet, but I don't think it's too readily out there. And I'm just curious, you know, when when you know 
you think about Cab Franc and Merlot, you can kind of, you can see the genetic breakdown. You can see how the genes were passed down from Cab Franc to Merlot. You can see the similarities that are in there, whatever. So I'm just curious as to what, you know, Mag, you know, Magdalene Noir de Chirant has given to Merlot, what those characteristics are. <clears throat> right. But, but yeah. I'm still on a mission to find some. I know. I know. I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. That's, um, that's uh, eluded me at this point, but you know, like you, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. Very cool. And so if, if somebody comes up to you and say, you know, I really don't know anything about Merlot. I, what what should I know about Merlot? What are a couple of things that you would tell a Merlot newbie to remember about Merlot? Well, I'll tell them for a start, do not watch sideways. <laughs> oh, my God. We could go on a whole other podcast on that, rant on that. <laughs> Except for the last scene when, when Mars yeah. is having a drink in the, in the fast food restaurant. That's worth, that's worth watching. But nobody uh, knows what he's drinking. Nobody that takes that line to heart understands that last scene. So, correct, correct. <laughs> um, so Merlot, I mean, I think Merlot, you know, generally I think we assume Merlot is a soft, gentle round wine and, and it, and it can be, um, but also some people d- decline to drink it because it's, it's said to be a soft, gentle uh, wine or even simple, but it, it's it's more than that. It has the has certainly has the ability to be more than that. Um, it does reflect the place it's grown, and it can be soft and gentle, but can all equally be quite quite bold and structured. It depends on place, also depends on wine making vision and philosophy. Um, but uh, but you know, like everything in wine, they all there's variation with with, all, with within wine, and that's why all wines are unique. They're not like a soft a, a soda drink or something that's the same every time you drink it. Um, and you should check them out and should try them out and and see because I know that when we pour our wine, I sometimes pour our Merlot for a Cabernet drinker that says no, I don't want the Merlot. I encourage them to drink it, and it's not it's not infrequent that they're pleasantly surprised. Okay. Um, so it's a good wine. It's worth it. It's worth the effort to to get search out. It's worth the effort to try it uh, and check it out. It's the, the flavors are different than the likes of Cabernet, of course. Um, definitely, you know, different than Pinot Noir, of course. Um, but it's, so they're, they're, they've got good aromatics, good lift, good and um, good center and density, and they can be supple, they can be structured. I agree, one hundred percent. And so let's talk about your actual winemaking process for Merlot. Maybe not necessarily two thousand eighteen. But in general, uh, how are you harvesting it? What are you looking for when you're harvesting Merlot in general and then bringing it into the winery? Any, you know, alterations you need to make, things like that. Yeah, every varietal has has its nuances towards the way they grow. And so for a start, the vineyard needs quite a lot of attention with Merlot. Um, and, And Merlot doesn't, like an extreme amount of direct heat but it loves lots of reflective light so um uh so we go to great lengths to make sure our our canopy is groomed in a fashion that will achieve all those things we don't strip our vines of leaves for example um our fruiting zone we actually 
do remove some layers, but we're selective as to what we do. And we typically only where we do remove any, we leave it on one side only. And the goal there is to keep overhead shade so that we don't have a lot of direct um, sun in the hot part of the day. Uh, yet we want plenty of opportunity for the fruit to receive light. Because if you don't receive light, the fruit tends not to colour up. And then you get a very simple sort of wine. So that's that's key for a start. So we do a lot of work on that. Um, also, we do a lot of work on even crop load, so an even fruit display. That's important. That also is partly to encourage even sunlight around the cluster, um, all part of the same thing. So there's a lot of work done in the field before we ever think about getting it, getting it to the winemaking, into winemaking and what have you. Um, but when we do get that point of, of calling a harvest, we, um, we, we do, we harvest at night. And we do that, um, we typically start sometime around midnight or 2 a.m. Uh, and we harvest by hand. We do it bec that because it's colder than that stage. One thing about Napa Valley is when in the summer we have nice warm days, but we have very, very cool nights. Uh, and that's a great thing from the point of view of how you initiate your winemaking because we have a natural chill on the fruit in the vineyard. Much easier to chill your tank of grapes out in the vineyard before you pick them than it is in, in the tank as a big mass of grapes. So we actually do that. We pick at night. Also allows us to get the fruit. Um, cold fruit is easy to get to the, get into the tank in better condition. So we do that. Upon receiving the fruit um, to the seller, we actually put it through a, a double and sometimes triple sorting system. So we sort all the way down to the berry. Um, um, so initial sort is a cluster sort, and then we, um, as we have people check out clusters. They remove anything that doesn't look like a spectacular cluster, um, whether it be you know leaves or twigs or a, or a, or a misshapen cluster for some reason, um, and then that goes to a destemmer. <laughs> At the point of destemming, um, berries are dropped onto a, a shaker table. Shaker table introduces it to an optical sorter. Uh, you're seeing that system operating on the screen right now, actually. So um, as the berries are introduced to the optical sorter, which you see there now, um, the sorter, the optical is, is programmed to look for things that we don't want. So we don't actually look for good berries on this sorting machine. We look for things that we don't want, whether it be twig, leaf, again, or a raisin berry or a berry that doesn't have color and what have you. Uh, and the system will go and do that. And it will eliminate only those things we don't want. Um, and then allow all the good berries to go pass by untouched and ready to roll for, for fermentation. So once we, those berries come through, they're received in a bin, it ends up being a bin of very high quality berries, which is sort of like really concentrating the quality within your tank is what it's doing. And so that's, um, um, and that's all the things that happen before we get to the fermenter. At that point, we actually are ready to deliver to the fermenter, which we do. Um, we, and uh, we deliver to our, our fermenter. We, we are generally doing small lot fermentation. So we have a lot of, I don't know, we have about, we have a lot of small tanks. And so we do a lot of um, small lot fermentation. We have different types of fermentation. So we have open top stainless tanks that'll hold up to about five tons of fruit um, down to, um concrete fermenters that hold hold three and oak vats that'll hold three and then we actually do some barrel fermentation um there, there's our concrete tanks there and oak vats and then that they'll then we have barrels individual barrels where we actually do barrel fermentation in the barrels with those sort of berries and there you see actually um 
one of the guys taking the head out of the barrel um, so that he can fill it with with um, berries. And that's quite the task to, to buy a brand, wow. new bar- brand new barrel, dismantle it, fill it with berries, and then actually rebuild re- the barrel. Um, and then, but we do that. We do that with quite a few barrels, and it's a lot of work. Um, and then those barriers, barrels end up being placed on a rolling rack, and instead of and to macerate, we actually spin the barrels. So quite interesting. There's a rolling. Wow. Rack. There's a rolling rack right there, and so Merlot actually actually reacts quite well to this process. However, for every every barrel we 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 ferment in are new new barrels only. So we um um. Just barrel men and new barrels, and um, um, and every barrel actually only produces half a barrel of actual wine at the end of the day. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty arduous process. So that's not so that's one of the components we use in in um, in, in our Merlot production. Uh, and this this wine here, I think, has seen uh, I think more than half of this blend is barrel fermented. Um, but you know, then with concrete and oak vat, the oak vats they tend to produce the most powerful, most dense wines. Um, and then the concrete produces a minerally sort of wine that's got a, a little bit of that sort of forest floor feel about it. Um, and the stainless steel gives us fruit opulence, real fruit drive, and, and good out and juicy, fruity sort of aromatics and what have you. And all of them become components that become useful on the bench, like I was talking about before, on the bench for blending and so forth. So we do a lot of things. That, that's all what we use for the vinification process. Of course, in the small tanks that we use, we they get, they're pumped over. Um, so, you know, of course, fermentation occurs, the skins float to the top, create what we call the cap. Uh, juices on the bottom. Juice, of course, of almost all red grapes is clear, so we need to extract the colour and tannin and the good structures from the skins. So we'll pump them over, as you see here, with a sprinkler device, and that'll just put the juice over the skins. It'll trickle through the skins and drag out all those good qualities. Um, and we can do that. We, we actually have the ability with, with with a lot of our tanks to do punch downs as well. Uh, punch downs is an old, a simple old world approach um, going back to old world concepts and really just allow us to break up the cap. And the reason we do this as much as anything is so that when we do a pump over, that the pump over is more efficient so we can do less movement um, for more, more positive results. Um, so a lot, lot of things going on and what have you. We do, like I said, a lot of what we do here, Laurie, is in small lots. And so therefore in small lots means we have lots of little barrel groups at the end of the day. So once we finish the vinification and, and we, you know, well, we'll be on skins there for about three weeks or so, um, sometimes a bit more, um, sometimes a touch less. But um, at the end of vinification, we will actually drain off the barrel um, and then press our skins and then all of these different tanks end up with being lots of different barrel lots. And so, therefore, we have opportunity to let them sit in barrel, mature over time, and then 15 months later, we'll come to looking at our blending pot opportunities. And all of those different aspects, barrel fermentation, concrete, oak bat, stainless steel, um, become variations that we can use across our blends and those variations are exacerbated or really they're multiplied by the number of different blocks we have in the vineyard, you know. So we have a lot of stuff going. Yeah, I would say so. That's not, you know, that's a lot of different things. The, the fruit in in the barrels themselves, that's kind of like a, a closed kind of carbonic maceration concept. Like, because you're yeah. fermenting, but on 
on the whole skin on the whole berry. So you're letting the juice come out on its own. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that, um, but uh, also what it does is it creates a very powerful wine that is quite yeah. supple, but quite quite round, quite supple, quite gentle, yet very powerful, which is almost like an oxymoron. Big, bold, dense, but gentle and gentle. graceful, charming. <laughs> um, yeah, that is very cool. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot of it. It takes a lot of work to achieve a little bit of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But the, see, but that's what makes the quality of it. So, like, I'm going to backtrack to to something you had said, uh, you know, previously about you know it, the wine doesn't taste the same every vintage. You know, it, it it's you know that's something that you want people to realize is that it cha- you know changes vintage to vintage, and that's one of kind of the things that I try to educate some people on is that if you're drinking a wine because there's people out there who buy wine specifically because it tastes the same year after year and i try to say well i'm not telling you not to drink that wine but you kind of have to think about how does that happen (laughs) that that you're drinking the same wine no matter what the vintage is no matter how mother nature was if it's tasting the same every year just just think that through yes, you know yes. <clears throat> yes there's a reason there's a date stamp on the front of every bottle and that's because there's a story about the season right absolutely absolutely and now with all of those different processes that that really does allow you to have fun for lack of a better word during blending trials that because yeah there yeah. are Listen, so many different variations the team here I drive the team here a little crazy with all the things we do. There's lots of lots of lots of little things, but it is a lot of fun. We do get to see a lot of things, and we do get to see that all these uh, different techniques do create different wines or different um, uniqueness to to the wines. So um, you know, if we put the same Merlot in each of those different types of fermenters, we'll get four, four different types of wines. Um, and at the end of the day, one of those is not always the best but often some combination of them is the best which is an opportunity you know right absolutely absolutely and now you do also make um an elu i don't know if i'm saying it and that has that has merlot a pretty fair share of merlot in it it's not a merlot based wine but there's a decent amount of it what what do you see merlot does to that wine why is it uh, portion in that wine? Ilu is a term that means chosen or elected or selected, as in this is a selected blend. So the blend is a Cabernet dominant wine. So what, it's a it's when Michel Roland came on board to work with us way back in the mid 90s, the first project he came on to do, and I worked with him in, in, in that, uh, with with him on that. Um, and we, real, we, just, we realized that for our vineyards, that the best blend would generally be a, a majority Cabernet blend. So typically we thought it would be about 65% Cabernet and about 20% Merlot. Now what we do is we start with that thought in the bench every time we make the wine and we adjust depending on what have you. So if it's, we have a very powerful Merlot year, Merlot might become a greater part of the blend than 20%. But what does it actually do? You know, you've got to remember Cabernet is big, bold, bold and powerful, but it's also a little robust. It can be a little bit, um, a little bit brute worthy. And whereas Merlot tends to, even though it can be, can be centered and be powerful, also tends to be more gentle and has, has big shoulders, but soft and, and rounder shoulders, right? So, and it has great center. Merlot has a, has a to be good driven center, Cabernet less so. Um, 
So when you're taking Cabernet and you apply Merlot to that, often you can enhance the, the, the palate length and the palate profile and the structure for those strengths of the, by building the centre and by making the edges of that Cabernet more supple and more round. And so and Merlot can be quite impactful on Cabernet. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that. And so how can people try these wines? What? How do they get St. Super? Can they come visit you? Are you guys still, are you doing tastings now? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, we do. Absolutely. We've got a terrific taste room and some really cool it's stuff. It's beautiful. Yeah. Really, we got some great ed educators here that will take people for a, a walk through some wines and we have different options. We have food and wine pairing options and what have you. Um, but here, here in Rutherford at, at St. Supri, um, of course, you can find information about us or our wines or buy our wines online at Um But, but, but it's great if, it's great if people come and visit because we really we do, really do encourage that. I mean, we are by appointment only because you know we do typically everything we do is with an educator, so um, we can only do so much so much at a time. Uh, but yeah, but we do have some super, super cool experiences, and if people want to come and check it out, um, call up and or send us a note, and we'll work it out. We'll make something happen. <laughs> Fantastic. And you are also on social media as St. Supere. So it's pretty easy to find you. And I have loved St. Supere for a long time. Uh, we, used, we used to visit a little, sadly, a little bit more regularly when we lived in New Jersey than now that I live in Pas like yeah. I'm I'm closer and yet I don't make it up there now where in New Jersey, we used to purposely fly there. But it is a beautiful a state it's a beautiful tasting room and customer service is amazing and honestly i don't think i've ever had a wine that i didn't like so kudos oh, to that that's very kind <laughs> that's very kind i appreciate that kudos to that so thank you very much i know it's a busy time i know you know as you said harvest is over but it's really not because everything's still working everything's still fermenting and you're preparing for the winter uh, but thank you very much for taking your time out and for sharing the wine with me and once again it's the 2018 yep. uh rutherford uh saint Supere merlot and i will raise my glass and i will always end with slancha so thank you very much and cheers slancha uh, thanks, Laurie. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbutt. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevins. Until next week, slancha.
right now. 